Well, let's have a little fun. Doug, roll the tape. This is the song that does it end. If you know it, sing it. Yes, it goes on, on and, and on, on, my friend. friend. You know what? Some people started singing it, not knowing what it was. You guys know and the song? they'll continue singing it forever just because this is the song that does it end. Oh, no. Yes, it goes Don't on you love and it? on, my friend. That's enough, guys. Some people started singing it, not knowing what it was. Now, I'm, I don't understand if you're not smiling yet. This is funny. It's going to end. It's okay. You can smile. It won't hurt. Okay. Okay. I get the joke. I can't believe you guys. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. I've had it. That's it. So you kind of get the idea. This song just keep going like that forever in fact if you youtube this song you can find one that they allow this to go on imagine it for 10 hours and lamb chops song is how some of you feel about our study about in the book of acts but today in this 32nd installment from the book of acts we're going to finally wrap up our study of the book and so off we go. We've been looking at Luke's travel journal, what we call in the New Testament there the book of Acts. Luke wrote two volumes sort of together. He wrote his gospel, the gospel according to Luke, to, to, as, a, as, a, as really a, a, a history, a, a, um, an argument, an apologetic, if you will, to his friend Theophilus. He followed that one up, though, with the book of Acts. And so kind of a two-volume work. And the travel journal of Luke is, is found in this book as he travels and, and learns from those who were part of the early church. Uh, he traveled with the Apostle Paul, as we've been seeing We've been looking at this book under the heading of Jesus' Gospel Gathering for Gospel Going. Uh, we've, we've tried to summarize 28 chapters in that simple phrase, and, and basically what we're driving at is this. The book of Acts is about the church, what we call the church, but, but what's clear in, in the book of Acts is that the church is not a building. They didn't have church buildings in this time. The church is a gathering, and so Jesus apostrophe or whatever you want to call it, possessive gospel gathering. We are owned by him. We are his gospel gathering. We gather around the gospel as those bought by the Lord Jesus through his death on the cross. And we gather around the gospel, not just to be warm and fuzzy and, and, and have good Christian fellowship, but that we might be compelled to go with the gospel into a world that needs to hear about him. And so today, again, we come to part 32 the final installment of our study uh, of this book. And I want to talk to you this morning about a life of gospel going. It's only fitting that we end this study of Jesus' gospel gathering for gospel going by talking about a life of gospel going. Because as you're going to see at the end of our time today, the, 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 the story really doesn't end. There's not really a conclusion to the book of Acts. And that's because you and I, in our lives, are writing the continuing chapters of the life of the early church. A life of gospel going, and here's the truth I want you to take home with you today. 
it's not like you hadn't heard this before in our study of the book of Acts, but one, one, one more time, we can, empowered by Jesus' Spirit, fulfill the Great Commission by living for the advance of the gospel. What are you living for? You see, it makes all the difference what you're living for, because whatever you're living for drives your priorities, drives everything about your life. It, 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 it dictates your schedule, your, your spending, all of these things. So what I'm asking here, what we're talking about here, what I'm saying is we can fulfill the Great Commission, but it requires you living for the gospel and the advance of the gospel. It requires each and every one of you, each and every follower of Jesus the world over, saying my life is first and foremost about worshiping Jesus and then advancing the gospel around the world. Whatever I do, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and even on Sunday, it's all about the advance of the gospel. That has the highest priority in my life. Will you, even at the beginning of this message, agree to make that commitment? You see, we can, empowered by Jesus' Spirit, fulfill the Great Commission by living for the advance of the gospel. Of course, the Great Commission is that command of Jesus to take the gospel, make disciples of all Nations, it sometimes seems insurmountable, but it's doable if this is our priority. Well, let me just ask you this morning, how do we do it? How do we live a life of gospel going? Well, Paul's life, as you would have probably guessed, as a prisoner en route from Jerusalem to Rome in these final chapters of Acts is our example. Now, we're going we're gonna to be going from the middle of chapter 23 to the end of the book. And in that, in that, in, in that span, we're actually going to be covering four to five years of Paul's life. Um, and, and as we look at his life, as we watch him travel from Jerusalem as a prisoner to Rome as a prisoner, and that's where we leave him as a prisoner in Rome, we see in his life our example of a life of gospel going. I want to summarize the rest of this book and wrap everything up with four exhortations this morning about how to live a life of gospel going. First of all, if you're going to live a life of gospel going, if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission and the Spirit's power by living for the advance of the gospel, we need to live gospel strange. You say, do what? Well, look at the screen so you know what I'm saying and are clear on what words I'm using. You must live gospel strange. I'm making up hyphenated words all morning. You ready? Here we go. So let's catch up real quick. When we left Paul last week in chapter 23, verse 11, he was in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem, rescued from the crazy Jews more than once by the Roman tribune Claudius Lysias, right? We'd seen Claudius Lysias save his life at least twice, right? Because the mob wanted to kill him because he was preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see him in that verse being encouraged personally by Jesus himself. Jesus comes to Paul at night in a dream and, 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 and speaks to him, and he encourages him for a job well done in Jerusalem as his witness there, and he assures, he assures Paul that he would indeed be Jesus' witness in Rome. You're going to get there. Just like I told you, Paul, that you're going to make it to Jerusalem and testify to me, you are going to get to Rome. The very next day, the text tells us, and I'm just, we're going to, all morning, we're just going to kind of be skimming through these stories. I would encourage you, take time to read the rest of this book sometime. It's, it's fascinating. 
The very next day, after he had that personal encouragement from Jesus himself, over 40 Jews took a vow not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Quick aside, works, religion, and legalism will make you mean and foolish, and you won't be able to see the beauty of Jesus or be able to love people in the freedom of his grace. Did you get that? has nothing to do with the message, it's just an aside. Works, religion, and legalism will make you mean and foolish, and you won't be able to see the beauty of Jesus or be able to love people in the freedom of his grace. But the main thing I want you to see in this murder plot is that Paul lived gospel-strange to the point that people were always trying to kill him. There was something about his life that was strange, that was odd, that was provocative to those around him. Paul lived gospel-strange, and it resulted in people wanting to kill him, throw him in prison, beat him, do all these kind of things to him all the time, right? Run him out of town, just whatever. Is your life gospel-strange enough to provoke anyone around you to some sort of question even about the root of the strangeness? Is there any difference between you and those around you? Do you live gospel strange? More about gospel strangeness in a minute. So God providentially intervenes in this murder plot through Paul's nephew, interestingly enough, you can read about it, who overheard the plot of the Jews and, 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 and tells Paul and then the Roman authorities that there's 40 guys, over 40 men, that have committed themselves, they're not going to eat or drink till he's dead. And they had a plan, it was so elaborate, they had a plan to trick Claudius Lysias into bringing him out into the open where they could grab him at the risk of their own life and at the risk of confrontation with the Roman authorities and kill him. That's how serious they were about killing Paul. But God intervenes. Paul's nephew hears of it. He takes it to, the, to Claudius Lysias. He tells him about it. And Claudius Lysias sends Paul down to Caesarea in the night so that he isn't murdered by these overzealous Jews. He sends a whole, like, 200 troops with him and, and sends him overnight. When he gets to Caesarea, he, he, he comes under the custody of the governor of the area, Felix. Felix talks to Paul. Paul witnesses to everybody in the book that he meets, right? So you, you can go read his witness to Felix. But then Felix leaves Paul in prison for two years. He had some freedom there in Caesarea. This wasn't like solitary confinement, bread and water kind of deal, but he was imprisoned there in Caesarea. Which, by the way, imagine how hard it would, that would be. I mean, it's one thing to be persecuted, but just to be forgotten about for two years. But don't be too discouraged for Paul. It was during that time that Paul wrote several books of your New Testament. And so God, even in the wait, knows what he's doing. Even in your wait, even in my wait, he knows what he's doing. You ever get frustrated with how slow God's moving things in your life and maybe your ministry? He's right on time. Don't miss what he wants to do in the wait. We have most, uh, so much of our New Testament because of these two years in Caesarea. Well, eventually... Felix is succeeded uh, as governor by a guy named Festus. <laughs> Don't you love the names? As if Felix wasn't bad enough. Festus, I mean, that sounds like some kind of sore, doesn't it? Festus. Uh, Uncle Fester, remember it? I don't know. I, I, I can't help, help it. So Festus comes into office here, and he's reviewing the new responsibilities that he has, and, and he discovers Paul is down there in prison, been there for two years, forgotten about by Felix. And he wants to figure out why he's there, so he calls Paul 
to stand in front of him. Festus ends up deciding that Paul should go back to Jerusalem to be dealt with by the Jews. He, 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 he comes to the conclusion, us Romans don't have, it's, it's, it's just some kind of religious dispute with the Jews. I'm just going to send you back to, to Jerusalem. Well, of course, Paul knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem, what's going to happen? They done tried twice to beat him to death. They're going to kill him. If the Romans turn him back over to the Jews, he'll be dead. But where did God tell him he's going to end up? Rome. So he's got to get to Rome. So in, 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 in the often odd mix of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, Paul acts on what he knows will happen if they get their way, and he appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen. Now, this was an old legal precedent where you could appeal right to Caesar himself if you were a citizen. But you had to abide by what he said no matter what. And remember, the Caesars were not usually paragons of fairness or even mental stability. The Caesar at this time was particularly crazy. He was a guy named Nero who was kind of a powder keg walking around with emotional C4 strapped to his chest. He was a mess. He was, I mean, he was a nut. But Paul's been in prison just sitting for two years, and he thinks, well, I know I'm supposed to get to Rome. This will get me there. And i got to face Nero when I get there, but God said go to Rome. And all I can figure is if I'm about to go back to be sent back to Jerusalem, that's not the right direction. West is where I need to go to Rome, so I appeal to Caesar. Well... Before they ship Paul off to Caesar, another governor in the region, actually a, a king in, the, in kind of a, uh, a, a, a born Jew, he, he's, he's from Israel, Herod Agrippa. This would be, I believe this is uh, King Herod at the time of Jesus' grandson. I think that's where we are in history. Um, he comes to visit Festus and says, I hear you've got Paul. Festus says, yep. Agrippa said, I've, I've heard about this guy. And in chapter 25, verse 22, it says, Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, Festus said, you will hear him. We're talking about living gospel strange. Agrippa had heard the stories about Paul because of his life of gospel going, because, of he, because he was living his life gospel strange. And, and, and Agrippa wanted to know, what is it about this guy that's got my whole country stirred up, the capital of Israel all jacked up? What's going on with this guy? I want to hear from him directly. And so again, I ask the question, does your life, does my life provoke curiosity in others? Does anyone wonder why, even how, you live the way you live? What do I mean by gospel strange? Where am I getting that? Well, if you've been around a while and you were here for our study of 1 Peter, you know, don't you? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter exhorts his readers. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and what? Strangers. To abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter says, you're not of this world. To kind of rephrase what Jesus said. You're not of this world. You're an alien. 
You're a sojourner. You're one who's just passing through. You're, you're a foreigner. You're a stranger in this land. So basically, Peter says, as strangers in the land, as strangers on planet earth, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, live strange. Live as aliens. Many of you who are here will remember this pastor went to great lengths to get in your head once and forever what it means to live strange. One of our awesome church members has a velociraptor outfit, meaning a head thing that fit over my head and claws that I put on my hands. And I would walk out with this velociraptor on and tell, tell y'all to live strange. And you got the point, right? We're, we're, we're to live like aliens in this world. Very different. Why? Well, when we live gospel strange, Paul or Peter tells us what will happen just a chapter over in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, he says this there. He says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Let me, let me bring these two passages in 1 Peter together. In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. What does the word Lord mean? How, what's another word for Lord? Boss, master, Okay. And so, so, so Peter is saying, make Christ Jesus the Lord, the master, the boss of your life. Well, if you do that, then you'll do what he said in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. You'll abstain from fleshly lust. Uh, you'll keep your behavior excellent. You'll live different. You'll obey Jesus' commands. You'll prove your love to him by how you live and what you do and what you don't do. Not because you have to, because you want to, because he died for you. And the result will be that people will ask you, a reason for the hope that's in you. And, and Peter says, you need to always be ready. They're going to ask when you live differently, you need to be ready to answer. And tell them what, what it is that gives you the hope that you have that allows you to live with such peace, with such joy, with such, with, with such love, with such self-sacrifice, with such a disregard for the things of this world, with such a low priority on things like things and money and power and position. And when they ask, you need to be able to tell them it's Jesus and Jesus alone. It's the fact that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I've believed in Him and I'll never perish. That gives me hope. I know I have everlasting life waiting me. It changes how I live my life. That's why I have peace. That's why I don't, I don't let myself love money even though I'm tempted. That's why I have joy in the midst of difficulty. You see, having Christ as Lord and having that hope that He brings, even when life is easy, that's how you have the peace of God. Maybe your circumstances aren't happy, and yet you have a joy that's much deeper than worldly happiness. Why? Because you have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. When people around you see that you are concerned for the well-being of others when you yourself are going through difficulty. you got your own stuff happening. They notice. And eventually they'll say, how is it that you can love everybody else so much when your life is so hard? And that's your chance. That's the time. 
And those opportunities come when we live gospel strange. You see, we can, empowered by Jesus' Spirit, fulfill the Great Commission by living for the advance of the gospel. And the first way we do that is to live gospel strange. The second way we do that is to live for gospel summons. What do I mean? We live, we choose to live, we intentionally live for opportunities to summons, that is to call people to respond to the gospel. Let me show you where Paul does this in, in Acts 26, verses 27 to 29. He, he's before King Agrippa now. Remember, King Agrippa wanted to hear from him. So he's before King Agrippa, and, and, and this is kind of toward the end of his, this is right at the end of his message. He's kind of wrapping up his testimony and his witness to Agrippa. And he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Remember, he was a Jewish man. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, let me, let me stop right there. What is he implying when he asks, do you believe the prophets? What's he really asking Agrippa? Well, he's just shown him from the Old Testament that the prophets said a suffering Messiah would come, somebody just like Jesus of Nazareth. And he's just, he's just gone through and explained all that to him from the Old Testament. And so he just asked him, do you believe the prophets? Well, any Jew, any good Jew believes the prophets. And so Paul's saying, do you believe it? Do you believe what, what the prophets said would happen about Messiah? Because I'm telling you, Agrippa, he's here. He's come. And Agrippa said to Paul, verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He said, whoa, 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 Paul. You think that I give you one shot and I'm going to convert to, to, to following this Jesus? And Paul said, whether short or long, I'll take as long as you want, Agrippa, how, how many times you want to talk. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul said, Do you, you, you figured it out. You figured me out, Agrippa. I want you to become a believer in Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're wondering if this church wants to convert you to be a follower of Jesus, yes. We're after your soul on behalf of Jesus himself. We want you to know the one who died for your sins, who rose the third day, who today reigns as king over all this world because there's nothing better in all of your life that could ever happen. Securing your eternity, enlivening your present, giving you abundant life like you've never known. It's exactly what we're about. No, no apologies. Whether short or long, Agrippa, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Except for these chains. Paul said, I don't want you to have to go through the suffering. But I want you to know my Jesus. Is that my heart's cry every day? Is that the desire of my heart and mind, of your heart and mind, with every person we meet and have opportunity to speak to? You see, that's what it means to live with gospel summons. You're looking for opportunities. Every face is an opportunity to call someone to your Savior, the Lord Jesus. You understand that this isn't just a neat thought about how you might want to live your life. As church members of East LJ Baptist, are y'all are tracking with me? 
This is the calling of every believer. David Platt this week at the Secret Church event made this statement. Not one Christian in the world is intended to simply soak in the gospel. Every Christian in this world is intended to spread the gospel. What that means, let me just spell that out for you as if it's not clear. If you're a believer, a professing believer in this room today, and you are not spreading the gospel, you're disobedient to the gospel. You're disobedient to the Lord Jesus who died for you and to save you. If you've got it figured out how in your head how you can retire from gospel ministry and, 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 and sharing Jesus, you've done your time, you're not reading the New Testament. You're not hearing from Jesus. You've made some false American God that says you get to retire from everything in this land of prosperity and do nothing for Jesus in your golden years or at 25, or at 40, because you're busy with kids and sports and everything you're doing. And no matter where we are on that spectrum, no matter how we think, it's wrong thinking. Y'all all right? You know, in a season where we're not seeing people come to Jesus regularly through our everyday personal witness here as a church, can we just talk? We offered a four-week personal evangelism training, and roughly a dozen of you took advantage of it. Does that mean that we've all got it figured out, that you are wide open and witnessing, that you, you have no issues, you don't need to learn anything about sharing Jesus? That's not true for me. Can I confess that as your pastor? I know I'm supposed to be the chief evangelist among us, but I, I've, got, I've got growth that needs to happen. Well, there's good news. We're fixing to start offering an apologetics course, and, and I'm going to give you a resource in just a second to help you in your personal evangelism because that's done. You see, the deal is if you love Jesus, you will obey the Great Commission out of a heart of love and desire and gratitude. You'll sound like Paul over in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, where he wrote, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, what does he mean by ministry of reconciliation? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Who was that? There's only one, Jesus. For our sake, God the Father made God the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that we who were sinners might be seen as just as righteous as Jesus is before holy God and therefore fully accepted, as Paul would say in another place, in the beloved. That's the message of reconciliation. You know I've been given. If, we, if we've been reconciled, then we're reconcilers. We're signed up automatically. You don't get to say to God, God, I'll take the salvation, but I don't want to do the work. I'll take the reconciliation, but I don't want to go to work reconciling a world to you. No. If you get the gospel, you go with the gospel. If you understand grace, you share grace. And it's not a legalistic thing, it's, a, it's the nature of the thing, right? 
How do you not tell about a God who gave his own son to die for your sins and, and save you and rescue you from a devil's hell and change your life and give you real life now? How do you not talk about that? You know, it, it, it worries me a whole lot when couples come to my office for premarital counseling and one is, one is the only one that acts in love. I, I'm, a little, I'm a little nervous about doing that wedding, amen? Huh? Are y'all okay? Y'all with me? I mean, I mean, if you're fixing to get married, you, you both need to be talking about each other like you want to marry that person, right? <laughs> this is a whole lot bigger than marriage. This is your soul's eternity. Your spouse can't do that for you. How do we not talk about it? I want to share a resource with you that will help you. I just came across it this week in your personal evangelism. It's on the screen. Go to on the internet. Just type this in in your search bar. OurGospelStory.com This is a series of very practical videos about your day-to-day witness produced by the Billy Graham Center up at Wheaton College that will help you and I live for gospel summons. It'll help you think about how to naturally transition into those conversations. I've been enjoying this, that this week, again, because I need to grow in personal evangelism. We can, empowered by Jesus' Spirit, fulfill the Great Commission by living for the advance of the gospel. How do we do that? We live, we live gospel strange, and we live for gospel summons, those opportunities where we call people to Jesus. But thirdly, we live in gospel sovereignty. Agrippa tells Festus after... He's done listening to Paul that Paul's not guilty of anything worthy of imprisonment and certainly not of death. And, and, he, and he tells Festus, he said, you know, Festus, if he hadn't appealed to, to, to Caesar, you could have turned him loose. You wouldn't have had to send him back to, to Jerusalem. You could just turn him loose and he could be a free man here in Caesarea, go wherever you wanted to go. He hadn't done anything for us to keep him. Well, finally, in chapter 27... The voyage to Rome begins from Sidon. So Caesarea, they, they, he, he gets turned over to some other soldiers, and they take him down uh, actually north uh, on the coast to Sidon, and they, they get on a ship there. When they get to Crete, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, warns the captain of the ship that it's going to be a dangerous, life-threatening voyage on the next leg, but he was ignored because, after all, what does some crazy re- religious fanatic know about sailing a ship? unless he's talking to the master of the sea (laughs) personally. So he gets ignored, and he's ignored until they were being beaten by a strong northeaster. Just as Paul had said, down to the detail from God, they had to jettison much of the cargo in the storm. And the storm was so intense that the sailors had not eaten for days because they were constantly around the clock battling to keep the ship upright and afloat. We pick it up in chapter 27, verse 21, where Luke says, Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood among them and said, Men, not trying to rub it in your face or anything, but you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. We've kind of heard this kind of talk from God to Paul before, haven't we? 
And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. So here's how it's going to go down, boys. You shouldn't have done, you should, we shouldn't have come this time, at this time and in this, in this direction. But here's the deal. God's told me, I, he's got, he's got one passenger on this boat that he's, that he's particularly interested in. That'd be me. And I've got to go to Rome to tell people about Jesus. But here's the cool thing about my God. He said he's going to save all the rest of y'all from this storm. You're, everybody's going to live. I mean, imagine it. 14 days in and, and they think they're going to die. They don't think they're ever going to get out of this alive. They've thrown over the, the, the cargo. I mean, it's bad. But Paul says, here's the thing. I've been told by God that we're all going to be okay, but here's what you got to know. We're going to crash this boat on an island. That's all I know. I know I'm going to Rome, but I know the boat I'm in is going to crash, but all of you and me too are going to live. You know why you're laughing? Because that's what God does with us too sometimes. I mean, not the same details and, and facts of our lives, but we get the next step. We feel that he's calling us 10 steps on down the road, but we have no idea about steps 2 through 10, right? Why? Because you don't need to know steps 2 through 10. You just need to know step 1. And then after you make that one, you'll, 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 you'll see step 2. And the bottom line is if God's called you to step 10, he'll get you to step 10. You see, Paul was living in gospel sovereignty. What do you mean, Chad? Well, God had a gospel job for Paul to do, to preach the gospel in Rome. He made that clear to him. And until that happened, Paul's life, hear me, until that happened, Paul's life was not in danger even when he was in danger. He was 10 foot tall and bulletproof in the sovereign hand of Almighty God. Because God's hand is at work to make sure he got to Rome and accomplished the task God had for him. Now, does that mean Paul didn't fear at any point in that, in that uh, storm? No. But it does mean that once God appeared and said, hey, here's the deal. You're going to live and everybody on the boat's going to live. I think Paul's good. I mean, he wasn't particularly enjoying the cruise, but he was good. He had peace. Paul was living in gospel sovereignty. Here's, here's what you need to understand. God has gospel plans for your life. And as long as you're walking in those gospel plans, that's, that's not, by the way, your career plans. It's not your educational aspirations. It's not all the things that you might figure out for your life. It's gospel plans, things that have to do with the Great Commission of getting the gospel to the world. If you're walking in God's gospel plans for your life, here's what you can know. You're living in gospel sovereignty, whether you know it or not. You're in the hand of God and you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Not in yourself, in Him. He has His hand around you. Nobody can touch you. Here's the thing. It doesn't mean you go out and live recklessly. I mean, Paul didn't want to get on this boat. He told him that wasn't the right boat to take. The point is, though, if God has, has a job for you to do out there somewhere, some other place, in the future time, you will make it there. Isn't that amazing? And so, how that ought to change us is if we know God's gospel plans for us, we just need to go all in, right? 
And yet we're timid and we, we, we fear. We don't understand how it's going to work. Just get on the boat. Hey, just say bring the shipwreck if that's a step in the process, right? Then, the story goes on, the shipwrecks on the island of Malta, actually. Verse 41, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow, the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, <laughs> sovereign hand of God working in the heart of a centurion, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought safely to the land. Then while on the island with the native people there, Paul gets snake-bitten. You can read about it. But he lives. It's a deadly snake. He gets bit on the hand, and, and he lives. He goes on to heal the leader of the island, a man named Publius' father, as well as all of the rest of the sick on the island. Just a supernatural act of Almighty God. He, he heals people. And as a result, he and all of his shipmates are shown hospitality for the next three months by these natives on the island of Malta until they can catch a ride on another ship that comes by that's headed for Rome. Just happens by, right? Happen, happenstance, right? Chance happening, right? If you believe in chance, you've got bigger faith than, than I do believing in God, right? What, what, what does that even mean? How do, you, how do you trust chance? I trust a sovereign God who rules. Clearly, the sovereign hand of God was carrying Paul to Rome. You and I have a gospel call in our lives if we're followers of Jesus, and therefore we are living in the gospel, in, we're living in gospel sovereignty every day, whether we realize it or not, and whether we live like it or not. Here's the deal. Start living like it. Fear doesn't need to paralyze us. Circumstances don't need to be the way, or at least the primary or main way that we decide the will of God for our lives because often it is shipwrecks and snake bites and the like that are all pieces of God's puzzle for our lives that He is sovereignly putting together to get us to our gospel task in Rome or wherever. And yet so many times as believers, especially in the American church, you know what we do? We hit a small pothole and we determine that this trip should be off. We hit a bump in the road. We're driving down the road and it wasn't smooth. It, that must mean the devil must be trying to stop this. God must not be in this. this is, we just reason all these different ways, right? How do you look at Paul's life? How do you interpret this? And not only was this not the work of the enemy, it was the hand of God to so position Paul at every step that he got where God called him to go. I mean, I mean, a, a small pothole two inches deep that just kind of makes your tire sidelines us sometimes, much less a speed bump, much less if we have to off-road to get somewhere, right? Are you, are you tracking the image here? 
I mean, if we've got to climb a hill to get there and burn a little more gas to get up the hill, a little more energy to get over the hump of service to the king, we just go back to the house. must not be God's will. <laughs> Don't use circumstances. Realize this. If God called you to, 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 to roam, he'll get you there. Now, it may include shipwrecks, snake bikes, and floating on driftwood, but don't stop till you get where he told you you're going. Matt Chandler said one of the biggest or brightest billboards for the sufficiency of Christ is our weakness, seen most clearly in our trials. And yet God uses us and shows his power in spite of our weakness. It's amazing when you look at Acts 23 through the end of the book, the similarities between this section of the book of Acts and the book of Esther in the Old Testament. How many of you ever read the book of Esther in the Old Testament? I understand it may not be everybody because that's who, who, who goes back there and reads, right? Yeah, I, do, I would encourage you to do that. By the way, the book of Esther never, never contains the name God. It never says the word God at all. It's in the Bible. Did you know that? There's a book in the Bible that doesn't talk about God, ever. Except, it's really talking about God. It's a story of this young Jewish lady who in, the, in being overtaken by a foreign nation, eventually, eventually because of her beauty, gets chosen and made queen in a foreign land. And, and, and the point of the book is to say that the sovereign hand of God, the providential working of God, got her there because it is her uncle Mordecai who, it, in, the, in the book, eventually makes this statement to Esther. Esther, who knows but what that you have come to this place for such a time as this. Can I translate that and, put, and, and bring God into the equation? Who knows if God hadn't been the one to orchestrate your beauty, everything about your life, everything about this situation, so that you, a God-fearing Jew, will be the queen and will be able to, in turn, serve as the rescuer of your whole people because there were mean people in that government that were fixing to get the king she was fixing to marry to kill all the Jews. And yet, Esther, for such time as this, you see the same sovereign hand of God all throughout these final chapters in the book of Acts. Nothing, nothing was going to stop Paul from getting to Rome. Why? Because he lived in gospel sovereignty, and so do you. We can, empowered by Jesus' Spirit, fulfill the Great Commission by living for the advance of the gospel. Finally this morning, how do you do that? How do we do that? We live gospel-sent. We live gospel-sent. He got to Rome. Acts chapter 28. They catch that other boat. They go to the Rome, they, they go to Rome, and in, in Acts 28, verse 17, and I'm not going to read all these verses, but I'm, I'm going to skip around a little bit to the end of the book. After three days, he just kind of recovered. I mean, it kind of been a rough, rough ride, hadn't it? <laughs> Can we give Paul three days off? Is that okay? If y'all give him, give him a three-day weekend? Okay. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. How many times have we seen him do that in this study of the book of Acts? Every town he went to. To the Jew first, Romans says, then the, then the Gentiles. He called together the local leaders of the Jews. Verse 23 says that from morning till evening they came. 
From morning to evening, he expounded to them, listen to this, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Did you know you can preach the gospel from the law of Moses? You can. Did you know you can preach the gospel from the prophets? You sure can. And Paul did. Man, I'd love to have been there. Because there's times when I'm not exactly sure what all he said from the law, and I'm not exactly sure everything, how he handled the, the prophets. I, I wish I could have been taught how to preach the gospel from the law and the prophets by Paul, right? But it's in there. And so he preaches that gospel. Verse 24, and some were convinced. How many times have we seen that? He goes to the local synagogue. He tells about Jesus. Some were convinced. Some believed. Some became followers of Jesus by what he said, but others disbelieved. They rejected it. And, and the implication here is that the Apparently, the majority must have done that because he begins to quote the Old Testament and, and, and talk about it. It's a passage where, where God basically says, yep, this is how it's going to go. When the gospel comes to you Jews, you're going to reject it. When, 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 I, when, when the word comes that Messiah is here, you're going to miss him. And so in verse 28, Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you, speaking to the Jews still, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Some manuscripts, the New American Standard, for example, yours may go. If you look at your Bible, you probably haven't noticed it, but right now if you look at your text, you may see verse 28 and then verse 30. How many see that in your Bible? Yeah, some of your translations, that's what happened. Some of the Greek manuscripts, don't get all caught up in this or worried about this, very insignificant either way. Some include verse 29, some do not. Here's verse 29, New American Standard. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Is that going to change any major doctrine that we believe about the faith? Is that going to change the gospel? Is there anything in that verse that makes an eternal difference? No. And it's probably pretty, pretty accurate, right? If some believed in the synagogue and some didn't, there was probably trouble. Okay? Enough said. You're now professional textual critics. You did a great job. Verse 30. He lived there two whole years in Rome under house arrest at his own expense. And welcomed all who came to him. He was given enough freedom to have guests. This was not, again, this was not solitary confinement. This wasn't like a, a dark dungeon where, you know, he, he couldn't see people. There was coming and going, but he couldn't leave. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That is living gospel sent. Sent with the gospel. Realizing that your whole life is about taking the gospel. Going with the gospel. We can, empowered by Jesus' Spirit, fulfill the Great Commission by living for the advance of the gospel. Paul did. And he spent the last two years of his life unable to leave the place where he was. I say the last two years of life. Let me check that. Not true. He spent two years in Rome once he got there, unable to leave the place where he was, he was kept, but at his own expense, having people over for meals, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, telling them about the Lord Jesus with all boldness. He was given free reign to preach and teach Jesus in Rome. That's Acts chapter 28, verse 31. The end. just stops. There's no conclusion. There's no wrap-up. 
All of our questions about Paul are unanswered. And yet realize this, in 35 to 40 years, Jesus' gospel gathering went from 120 people in Jerusalem all the way to Rome and beyond some 2,997.4 miles as the crow's crow would fly from Jerusalem. See the map? Today that's an eight-hour flight. It all started in Jerusalem. This is a picture of his trip that we just... Whoa! Wow. This is a picture of his trip that we just traced all the way up to Rome there on the Italian boot thing. Almost 3,000 miles away, in 35 to 40 years, Jesus' gospel gathering goes from 120 people in Jerusalem to Rome with hundreds of thousands of believers all across the empire. The gospel of Jesus Christ did something that no other religion up to this point had done. It crossed not only socioeconomic lines in every society that it entered, but it it, it also was a message for all nations, for every ethnos, which is totally unique up to this point. Each, each region had its own gods, right? We talk about Roman mythology. We talk about Greek mythology, right? They had their own little deal. Other places had local spirits, and there was just this regional worship of God. You say, but what happens when he stands before Caesar? Yeah, see, we just don't know. We don't know all the details, and none from Luke. We do know that the letter Paul wrote to the Romans indicates that he hoped to go on from Rome into Spain. You remember reading that in Romans? To be the first one to ever preach Christ there, and history tells us that he did. That after this two years, he was released for a little while, later on rearrested. And executed. But, but Acts doesn't tell us. It ends in a cliffhanger. And I just believe you're not told what happens to Paul in his dreams because it's not about Paul. Or even his gospel dreams. It's about the Spirit and the gospel. Next time he was in Rome, he did stand before Nero, history tells us. Nero condemned him. He was beheaded, and his body was thrown to the dogs. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago. Paul didn't have a tombstone because he didn't have a tomb. The dogs ate. The most profound witness of Christianity the world's ever known. Why didn't Luke record all that? This is Luke's way of saying to the Neros of the world, you can kill and imprison the Pauls of the church, but you can't stop the gospel. Paul's story ended. Now it's our turn. Paul's dead. The gospel and the spirit of Jesus in us, his people, remains. It's our turn. Jesus' gospel gathering for gospel going. Acts chapter 1-8 is where it all started as Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the book of Acts says, it happened.
Understand that in that day, if you lived in Jerusalem, the end of the earth was Rome. Maybe Spain. That's all they knew. Thank God that it came on to our end, that we got the message. Amen? A hundred years later in Europe, and our, most of our forebears coming from that part of the world. The gospel going isn't finished, but one day the strong, mighty wind of the Holy Spirit blew into 120 believers and they turned the world upside down and it's still blowing. The, the word used back there in Acts chapter, or chapter 2 when it talks about the Spirit coming on people, it, it's, it's the word used to describe how the wind blows in a hurricane. Why do most American churches look just like a cool two-mile-an-hour summer breeze and not a, a raging gale force wind for the gospel? The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, lives in me. same Spirit that turned the Roman Empire upside down. The same Spirit that lived in Paul. The same Spirit that lived in every believer in the early church we've talked about in the book of Acts lives in you. We just got to act like it. We just got to let Him have us. With over 6,500 unreached people groups left in the world, there's much work to do, isn't there? Because Jesus said, you know when He's coming back? When every people group has heard. However, when Paul died, there was 12 unreached people groups for every one church. Track with me now. This is simple math, but, but you got to pay attention. 12 unreached people groups for every one church. That means one church. Every individual church had to reach 12 unreached people groups. Check out how it is today, though. Now, there is one unreached people group. Listen to me. For every 680 churches. Why haven't we finished the Great Commission? Because we're disobedient. Bottom line. Because somebody in this room hasn't answered God's call to go to an unreached people group. You've decided to live the American dream. Six hundred and eighty churches to reach one people group? There's more people and money than you can shake a stick at to get the job done. This thing's doable. We hear six thousand five hundred, we freak out. We ought to be freaking out that it's not done. And I don't know about you, but my, my commitment is to lead you as a church to greater evangelization of the unreached peoples. Because here's the deal. Just from a selfish standpoint alone, I want Jesus to come back. But he said before he does, every people will hear. It's doable if we live gospel strange, if we live for gospel summons, if we live in gospel sovereignty, and if we live gospel sent. The question is, will we? Will you pray this way? Will you give this way for the ministry of this local church as, as well as to our international missionaries? Would, will you volunteer to, to help with things like the International Learning Center coming up in the fall as we seek to serve international families in our community with, an adult, with adult English classes and homework tutoring for their kids that they can't help because they can't speak or read English? All with the goal of loving them and sharing the gospel with them. World missions right here in our own front yard. Or will you volunteer to pray, Pam, for or serve in the 
invitation youth conference coming May 4th through 6th so that teenagers all across Gilmer County, we've been praying for them for about four weeks now. Every Wednesday night for 30 minutes, we've been, been going through the, the Gilmer High School yearbook praying for kids by name for their salvation, praying by name for specific children that our kids know don't know Jesus, asking God to bring them here and save them. But we want you, some of you, actively praying during the meetings on May 4th, 5th, and 6th for God to save souls. Will you, will you volunteer to do that? There's something on the table right here as you leave today. Sign up there. Will you invite your coworker, your neighbor, your family member, or friend to church? Will you give them a life book? Yep, you knew it was coming. I didn't forget. You all took a life book last week. How many of you still have the life book? This is when you don't want to be able to raise your hand. But be honest, you're in church. If you lie, it's between you and God. How many of you still have... I'm just, I'm just teasing. Let's do it the other way. How many of you gave away your life book this week? At least one. Ooh, that wasn't much better. Okay, so you still have a life book. And so the question is, what's the deal? Do you know how easy that is? Let me tell you how I did one. I, I did a, few, a couple this week. But one, I just wrote a note on the check at the restaurant and said, thank you, a gift for you. That's okay. The other one, I actually looked at the person I was able to talk to him just briefly and introduce myself and, and said, I just want to give you this, this gift. Neither person was in a place to have a big lengthy conversation, but they have the Word of God, and it's if they open it, in the providence of God, there's this God we serve, He's sovereign. If you pray, He might just make somebody open that little thing and read it, and it starts talking about how to know Jesus. You see, we are Acts 29, Jim. What story will our chapter tell? We can, empowered by, the, by Jesus' Spirit, fulfill the Great Commission by living for the advance of the gospel. Let's pray together.